The following sermon was delivered in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, what I'd like to do is uh, open God's Word to Psalm chapter 2. And uh, this is a brand new sermon, so you're all my guinea pigs this morning, so I'm going to work out all of the rough spaces with you. And uh, then uh, as I preach it tonight at CBC, hopefully I can work out all of the uh, kinks uh, from this morning. But I wanted to preach something that had a bit of a missions tone to it, and uh, hopefully something that will be encouraging to you at the same time. So open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 2. Let me begin reading in verse 1 of Psalm 2. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. And he begins with the question, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with the rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Calvary Community Church and for the privilege and opportunity to be here this morning with these dear saints. Now I just pray that as we open up your word with the time that we have remaining, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. And Lord, I pray that these truths would impact us, that they would challenge us, that they would change us. And Father, ultimately, that we would be encouraged by what we hear from your word this morning. May we realize that the hour is late and the clock is ticking, and there are many who have yet to come to Christ. And so, Father, while we live in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation, may we reach out to them with the light of the gospel. And may you use us as, that, as both salt and light in the days that remain until you come. And we pray these things in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Well, if you're like me and you follow the headlines... Uh, It's probably no secret to you that uh, the times, they are changing, aren't they? Things aren't what they used to be, even just a few years ago. And I just brought three articles I printed off last night with me to remind us of that. And 
to remind us of how the world at large really doesn't think much of, of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I was reminded of that recently when there was a man by the name of Russell Vaught who was being interviewed by a Senate committee for a post that President Trump had for him. And he was asked a series of questions by Senator Sanders, Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders wasn't impressed with this man's resume of being a born-again believer who used to teach at Wheaton College in Illinois. And so as part of that repartee that took place, Senator Sanders queried him on something he had said about Islam. Senator Sanders was not happy at all, and he concluded his evaluation of Mr. Vaught by saying, do you think that's respectful to other religions? I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee is really not someone who this country is supposed to be about. You're not supposed to be about uh, being a Christian who stands on the convictions of God's Word. That's no longer allowable in the United States of America with our supposed religious liberty. Recently, ABC and NBC labeled the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a uh, legal group who defend conservatives and defend Christians, they, they labeled them as a hate group. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is no friend to Christianity, has done the same and calls any group who stands on the fundamental principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ a hate group without any justification whatsoever. Then somebody sent me this article. People send me articles all the time related to things like this concerning Pope Francis. And just a couple of weeks ago, he said that evangelical Christians must renounce their theopolitics. And he went on to say that evangelical Christians are akin to radical Islam to include groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Now that's rich coming from a man who oversees one of the most homosexual institutions in the world. I would think that he would have more important matters to deal with in his own church. But this is the type of rhetoric that we are seeing more increasingly. It shouldn't be a surprise to us though, should it? Because as you read the first three verses of Psalm 2, this will be the scene when the Lord finally returns. So it's conceivable that all of the, the vehement vitriolic rhetoric that's aimed at Christianity today is just falling in line and will eventually someday morph into the prophetic aspects that we see here in Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 is a royal enthronement psalm. It has definite messianic implications. There's no doubt about that. And there aren't that many messianic psalms, but this is certainly one of them. 
Now, while it had practical, historical uh, import and ramifications for the day in which it was written, for earthly Israel and Israel's earthly kings, it also shares an unmistakable emphasis on things that are yet to come. And when the kingdom is yet to come, when Christ finally returns at the end of the great tribulation to establish his millennial reign on earth, certainly it has that vibrancy and that vitality and vividness about it. And that should thrill our soul. And though the psalm does not indicate who wrote it, Its style and its language and its theology all indicate that it was written in the early monarchical period of ancient Israel. In other words, it is quite conceivable that King David composed this psalm as well, even though it does not brandish his name. This psalm is most certainly connected with the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it, has, it bears many of the hallmarks of that covenant. So in light of its futuristic tone, there are some uh, wonderful truths and intriguing truths that I think will serve to encourage you this morning, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ, it won't be any encouragement to you at all. But it will be a warning. The call will go forth that it's not too late to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this psalm has four very clear stanzas. And so as my proposition this morning, I'm going to preach it on the basis of these stanzas, and just call it four scenes. Four scenes of the future kingdom. And so I want to really emphasize the prophetic nature of this. At times I'll reach back to the historical past as well, but let's focus on what's yet to come. And let me start with scene one of this prophetic psalm. And it's simply this. We have a scene that pictures the confederacy of the rebellious. The confederacy of the rebellious. Verses 1 through 3. And it begins on this wise. Why are the nations in in an uproar? Now, the question here is not really one of being inquisitive or inquiry. He knows why they're in an uproar. It's more of just utter amazement. Why would they even try such a foolhardy plan? That's really the idea that's coming out here. In ancient times, as in present times, a change of political dispensation was often a very precarious time. In the ancient Near East, and the context in which this psalm was originally written, a change in kingship very easily created political instability, as other nations would exploit the uncertainty of the transition that would be taking place for their own evil purposes. I still remember in 1980, when Ronald Reagan became president, I was a young airman in the United States Air Force and and stationed in Effie Warren Air Force Base in Wyoming. 
and he became president on the day of his inauguration, the very day the Iranians let all of those American prisoners from the American embassy go free. What a difference a day makes. Why did they do that? Well, up until that time, they knew they could get away with it. They knew that we had weak-willed leadership. But on the day of Ronald Reagan's inauguration, they knew there's a new sheriff in town. And he's coming to clean house. And he's not going to take names. And so they let all those prisoners free. Similar things happened in antiquity as well. There's nothing new under the sun. And so here, the question is asked, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. What we see here in verse 1 of this confederacy of the rebellious is the folly of futility. The nations gather together, and he he uses two different terms for, for nations here, the nations and the peoples, capturing all the nuances of what that means. doesn't matter who they are, all of the Gentile nations. These two terms cover all the bases. And it says here they're in an uproar. Other versions say they rage or they they rail. And the idea of this verb is that there is a systemic restlessness that finds them finding commonality in their conspiracy against the God of the universe. The nations are going to gather together. They're going to have their G20 summits. And they're manifestly restless. They don't like the fact that Yahweh, Jehovah, reigns on high. And that he ultimately will establish his kingdom. And so they conspire together and they meet in this confederacy of evil. And they collectively and mutinously hatch a nefarious plot against the true and living God. It says that they're in an uproar, and that uproar evidences itself, and they're devising a vain thing, or they're plotting. It's an ongoing scheme where they hatch a strategy to somehow keep God at bay. And in the midst of that, there'll be lying, there'll be deception. All of these words, all of this flowery, sophisticated rhetoric as they hatch their plot against God. And in the process, they're going to misdiagnose the problem altogether because they are the problem. But they think God is the problem and therefore they think God's people are the problem as well. What I find interesting about the context here is it's all words. They're just yammering. They're yapping their jaws. Yep, 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 yep. Typical politicians. Much rhetoric, little action. 
talk is cheap. All of their mutinous plotting and scheming results in one big double-double nothing burger. It comes to naught. That's the futility of their folly as they convene together. Then we see the futility of their limitations. The futility of their limitations. Verses 2 and 3. The kings of the earth take their stand. That first clause there, phrase, the kings of the earth. Notice their limitations. They are kings, but they are kings only of this earth. They are earthly kings. They're not heavenly kings. They're not divine kings. They have vast limitations that are placed upon them. And so here you have these earthly kings yapping their flappers, trying to coordinate their strategy against the rock of ages. Their influence is limited to this earth. They can dig their heels in all they want. They can have their earthly summits. They can say majority rules and try to offset God's coup d'etat against God and His anointed one, against the Messiah. But it's all fruitless. It will all come to naught. The language here is strong. I envision two kids on the playground having a verbal argument with one another. That's kind of the idea that's conjured up here as they mouth off. I remember my dad used to say, well, you're good at mouthing off. You're very lippy. Well, they're mouthing off. They're very lippy. They're going to do this, and they're going to do that, and they're not going to stand for this. God can't do this. We're not going to allow his people to do this. They'll dig their heels in, but they dig their heels into the earth, to the ground. And they try to oppose him. And so they respond, let us, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We'll have none of this. This is all metaphorical language here. It's poetic. And it's meant to drive the point home. The thought that God will usurp their authority and cause them to bow at his feet is like prison to them. It is like they are shackled and they are bound and they want to throw off all of those shackles of incarceration because they want to be free. They have their own definition of freedom. Foolishly thinking that their version of freedom will truly lead to freedom at last. And so they respond. It reminds me of what the the angry mob said when Pilate presented Jesus to them. And he said, look, Barabbas or Jesus, we will not have this Jesus reign over us. When he was introduced as their king. That is the same sentiment that will be uttered by the kings of this earth. And we hear it being uttered even now. 
Verse 3 here simply indicates that they conceive of God's rule as a form of unthinkable torture and bondage. They want to be free. They want to live without divine restraint. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said of these three verses, we have here in the first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. Another theologian said, sinful men never want to walk within the limitations that God places on his creatures. In their arrogance, they proclaim their supposed freedom and they claim to be the master of their own destinies. It reminds me of Ernst Henley's poem, Invictus. These famous words, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishment, the scroll... I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's their creed. That's their worldview. And they'll die by it. There is the confederacy of the rebellious. The second scene, we see in this scene the divine comedic response. The divine comedic response, beginning in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Here we see God's sovereignty on display. Note where the kings of the earth are on earth. Note where the God of the ages is in heaven. He, as a, we see his overarching sovereignty on grand display here in this psalm as it interfaces with the perceived lordship of human potentates who look rather impotent by comparison to this heavenly king. And here we see a twofold response to the bravado of pygmy man. First, the first response of this comedic response is a derisive response. He laughs. He scoffs. In other words, he mocks at them. What kind of a laugh and mocking tone is this? It is the laugh of one who is complete sovereignty who shakes his head as he sits ensconced on his throne. He sits in the heavens. He's enthroned. That's imagery of power and authority. And so he laughs at them. They can say, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing, and we're not going to let this happen, and he's just going to bowl right over them. And so he laughs. Part of his sovereignty here. The kings of the earth dare to challenge the God of the universe who sits on his throne and high in the heavens. It's rather comical, isn't it? And he laughs because he knows that his day is coming and that final judgment is coming and that their days are very numbered. In fact, in Psalm 37, in verse 13, We read these words. 
the Lord laughs at him. For he sees his day is coming. There is coming a day when the fulfillment of God's plan will take place. And the ultimate realization of this prophetic psalm will be realized in reality on planet earth. What a day that will be. The beauty is, if you know Christ, we'll be there with him. Reigning in glory. Psalm 59.8, again here he says, But thou, O Lord, dost laugh at them, thou dost scoff at all the nations. All of their plans, all of their scheming, it all comes to naught on that day, on fulfillment day, on judgment day. As his kingship is established. And so it's a divisive derisive response. Secondly, it's a unilateral response. Verses 5 and 6. Then he will speak to them in his anger, terrify them with his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. On this day, all of the democratically minded world will not like the unilateral response and actions of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You see, in our democratically controlled world, every man, every woman wants to put their finger in the pie of decision making. And the only one making a decision here in verses 5 and 6 is God himself. That's it. There's no vote. There's no casting your ballot. There's no straw polls. None of that. No campaign. Aren't you glad I get sick of those? And the commercials and the phone calls. They'd call me in South Africa if they could. It's all going to come to naught. The central focus of verse 5 here is his wrath. His burning anger and heated rage. It says that he will terrify them in his anger, in his fury. The wrath of God is on display. But how does he display it? Verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon, my, upon Zion, my holy mountain. God doesn't issue idle threats to these kings who are enraged against him. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't tell them, I'm going to do thus and so to you. Do you know how he responds? He simply responds by announcing the establishment of his king. This is what has just happened, whether you like it or not. And it's his king, and it's his holy mountain, which is a reference, of course, to Jerusalem, along with Zion. Referring to where the king of kings and lord of lords will someday return. He's my king. It's my holy mountain. You see, it's all through God's sovereign agency, isn't it? It's almost like God saying, do what you will, say what you will. Boom, it's done. Go ahead, punk. Make my day. And it's over. It's all by divine appointment. No vote here. No billion dollar campaigns. 
just God speaking and it is done. Yahweh, in his sovereignty, establishes his rule. He has the right to rule. We could look at Isaiah 40. We could look at Daniel chapter 2. We could look at Daniel chapter 7 and other various passages, Daniel chapter 4. All of those indicate the sovereignty of God over the nations of this earth. And this royal psalm, even though it was applied to every Davidic king that ever lived, it ultimately applies to the greatest king of all, God's son, Jesus Christ. The Roman emperor Diocletian was a first fierce persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. And out of the ten waves of Roman persecution in the first 300 years of the church, Diocletian's was probably one of the fiercest. After his successful military campaign in what is now Spain, Diocletian had two monuments erected in Spain. On the one monument said Diocletian that he extinguished the name of Christian who brought the republic to ruin. On the second monument that he established in Spain, it said this, everywhere he, meaning Diocletian, abolished the superstition of Christ for having extended the worship of the gods. Well, in case you haven't noticed, Diocletian is dead and Christianity rolls on. It might be trite, but it's no less true. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The world refuses to learn that lesson. And so, that ends the second scene where we have this comedic response. That leads us to the third scene of this psalm. The third scene where we see the certain rule of the king. The certain rule of the king. Beginning in verse 7 with these famous words, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with the rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware or clay pots, clay jars. So how does he rule? It says in verses 4 to 6 that he will rule, that he does rule. But how does he rule in this certain rule of the king? Well, firstly, he rules by decree in verse 7. And the language here is unique. It has direct links and ties to the Davidic covenant. And I don't have time to turn there this morning. But it it has ties to the sonship that is showcased in the Davidic covenant there in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. And at the heart of that covenant is a father-son relationship that takes place. A relationship which with earthly kings, would have been a a legal relationship of sorts, whereby the king was a son uh, and representative of the father and the theocracy that he oversaw, yet without being divine. 
And it's important to say that and underscore that because in some of the ancient Near Eastern societies around Israel, when a king was enthroned and coronated, ultimately as the son of the gods, it was thought that that king was somehow divine or semi-divine. Not so with God's earthly representatives, but certainly so with the king of kings and the lord of lords. But this father-son relationship is important because it earmarks a very special, intimate relationship that God has with His Son. And so we see that between the Father and the Son. And it is the Son's commission at the behest of the Father to make the domain of the Father visible to all the earth. All of the earth will see this someday. There is no quarter, there is no quadrant, there is no place on this earth where this will not be represented. Further, it sees a very special relationship that's signified at this coronation In antiquity, in the ancient Near East, kings were first crowned. And then a document was was given and read by the king before the people. Then they would anoint the king with with oil. And then a pronouncement was made that the king officially received the kingdom. Didn't the father make a similar-like pronouncement? Concerning the Son? In fact, if you keep your finger in Psalm 2, but turn over to the New Testament, there are 18 references to this. I'm not going to look them all up, so please don't worry. We're just going to look at a couple of them. But one is at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew 3, in verse 17, we see these words right out of, lifted out of Psalm 2. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here we have confirmation that this is God's King, this is God's Son. We see the Father Son relationship taking place here. Then in Matthew 17, at the, the Transfiguration, chapter 17 and verse 5. There it says, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Then, of course, there are those words in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. And there it says, and he meaning Christ, is the radiance of his glory, that's the Father, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son? Today I have begotten thee, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And then finally, I'll look at one other at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation in chapter 19 
And there are three times in Revelation where this statement occurs, but let me look at the last of them. And Revelation 19 and verse 15, Jesus Christ is descending from the clouds, from the heavens, with his angels and his saintly retinue in tow at the battle of Armageddon riding on his white horse, wearing his white raiment. And this is what is said in verse 15 of Revelation 19. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And all of God's people said, Amen. That's the confirmation that Jesus Christ is that ultimate son that is referenced in Psalm chapter 2. What a glorious thought. Now turning back to Psalm 2. Yes, he rules by decree. He also rules universally. Verses 8 through 9. I will give the nations as thine inheritance, and as the very ends of the earth is thy possessions. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Here's his universal rule. As God's only son, he is the sole inheritor of all that God has created. And the first order of business for the king, once his coronation has taken place, is to do the will of the Father and to quell the rebellion that has taken place. And he will use that rod of iron, which is a symbol of strength and power and authority, to establish control and peace and safety on this earth. And then it says that he will shatter them like earthenware or clay jars. In the ancient Near East, in certain countries and kingdoms, before a king went to war and did battle with another king, he would take a clay jar, he would write the name or have the name of that king inscribed on that clay jar, and then he would write out curses against that king, place those in the clay jar, and then he would go in front of his military and he would shatter that clay jar into a thousand different pieces, symbolizing the defeat of the enemy, and the blessing of the gods and goddesses of that day and that age. And so in like manner, the King of kings and the Lord of lords will quell that rebellion. He will but speak the word and it will be done. So we've seen the congregation of the rebellious or the confederacy of the rebellious, the comedic response of the sovereign Lord, the certain rule of the king. Finally, in the last scene, we see the compassionate reminder to the rebels. The compassionate reminder to the rebels. God wants to give them one more chance, one more opportunity to repent of their wickedness and their evil. 
And so he says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Predicated on the cosmic events that have just been mentioned in the middle of this psalm, he now issues one last warning about the events that are to take place and and the way of escape. There is an exit from all of this. But they have to put an end to the rebellion. An end to all of this nonsense on stilts. And so we have this compassionate call. What kind of a call or reminder is it? Well, first off, in verse 10, it's a call to be wise. Wise up, you guys. Don't you understand what's about to happen? I will speak the word and the war will be over. You see, one would expect a certain amount of wisdom amongst one's rulers, wouldn't you? No, but they are woefully deficient in this department. They need to humble themselves and receive the instruction that God is giving them from his word. They need to be teachable and reasonable, not irrational. In the end, God uses the the weak things of this world to confound the wise, does he not? So there's a call to wisdom here. Verse 11, there's a call to worship. A call to worship. For he says, worship the Lord with reverence or fear. And rejoice. Two seeming contradictory truths here, but it's a worship that will include both the fear of the Lord and the rejoicing that comes from making Him your hiding place and your refuge and from getting your sin under the blood. So there's a call to worship Him and to serve Him in all sincerity, humility, and truth. Then there's a call to submit in the first part of verse 12. Do homage to the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. The call to submit here is very unique. My version says do homage to the Son. Other versions say kiss the Son. And really, that's the way it reads, kiss the sun. And what's interesting in that little phrase, kiss the sun, which is really a symbol of submission and bowing in humility to pay homage to the king. The word sun that's used here is in the Aramaic, not the Hebrew. Why is it in the Aramaic? Because Aramaic replaced Akkadian as the trade language of the day at about the time that David reigned as king. And Aramaic was like English is today. And so he uses the Aramaic term bar instead of the Hebrew term bane for son here. Why would he do that? Because he's referencing and he is directly addressing earthly Gentile kings. And he's speaking in a language that they understand. 
They're to bow down in a symbolic act. This has political overtones which require these foreign nations to submit as vassal nations to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then he concludes in that last clause with the final call here, a call to spiritual rest. A call to spiritual rest. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. He becomes our resting place. He becomes our hiding place. We hide under the shadow of the Almighty. This is essentially a prophetic message that while it had historical significance in its day, in the past, it now anticipates the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So what's the significance of this for us today? A couple thoughts and I close. As Alan, commentator Alan Ross says, It is wise to submit to the authority of the Messiah because God has decreed that he will put down all the rebellion and he will rule the world. Unbeliever, that means believe on the word. Believe on the word of God now and submit to the authority of the Son while you still can before he comes. And before he judges the wickedness of this world and he reigns in all splendor for a thousand years. There are those who claim to worship the one true God but they cannot bring themselves to worshiping the Son. If you don't worship the Son, you don't worship the Father. He who believes in God believes also in me, Jesus said in John 14, 1. So unbeliever, believe Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ while it is still today. Secondly, and here's a twofold thought for believers. Number one, be encouraged because the antagonism and the rebellion against God and Christ and all of those who currently follow Him will someday come to an end. The results are not even in question here. It's not a matter of if, it is simply a matter of when. And when it happens, it will happen by storm, it will happen by surprise, and it will happen with all force and all authority that God can wield through His Son. That's our hope. That's our encouragement. That's our comfort. Secondly, believers... There's a great missionary challenge here, isn't there? A challenge to the church of Jesus Christ to arise up as the grateful recipients of God's elective grace and to go out and to make His name known to all of those nations who are currently shaking their fist at the face of Almighty God. You see, God isn't going to do it without a vehicle. And just as God ordained salvation and those who would, who would be saved unto salvation, He has also ordained the means of that salvation. And the means of that salvation includes the Word of God and includes the preaching of God's Word. How shall they hear 
without a preacher. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. And it is up to you, and it is up to me to go forth and to herald this warning, this call to wicked nations. Whether it's our own or some other wicked nation. Until every ear shall hear. Until every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for such an encouraging psalm. I thank you for your exceedingly precious promises. I thank you for the promise that you have made in your word to us. And Father, while we look around, there are many days where things seem rather bleak. Not only in this country, but abroad as well. And Father, it can trouble us. It's disheartening. But help us to focus on Christ. To focus on the promise of your word. To focus on on the end when we are in your presence for all time and all eternity. Until then, until you come, until you take us to be with yourself. Whether through death or through the second coming of Christ. I pray that you would help us to be busy about your work. Proclaiming this warning, this call to those who have not heard, to those who may have heard but have yet to heed, that some might still believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that they might, might be saved. Now, Father, help us not to be downcast, help us not to be disheartened, but may we take comfort and refuge in the words that we have read and talked of this morning. And may you be glorified. And Father, we pray this in the matchless name of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who came once and will yet come again. We pray it in his name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.